Southwest Fire Academy was established in 2015 as a response to the recognized need for quality, safe, and affordable fire and rescue training in Ontario. This is not your average fire college. SFA has high standards for their students, and it is their mission to teach and produce qualified, ambitious firefighters who are prepared to work hard to serve their communities. This is not a diploma mill. This is where you can learn strategic, aggressive firefighting from passionate, intelligent instructors who never forget why they were made to do this job. SFA is an accredited private career college that is regulated by the Ministry of Training, Colleges and Universities with a Memorandum of Understanding with the Office of the Fire Marshal. This means that SFA is an approved training provider with the OFM and the programs are recognized in Ontario. Check out the pre-service and expanding selection of course offerings at southwestfireacademy.com. Welcome to episode 80 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Poet David White on Friendship The dynamic of friendship is almost always underestimated as a constant force in human life. A diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble, of overwork, of too much emphasis on a professional identity, of forgetting who will be there when our armored personalities run into the inevitable natural disasters and vulnerabilities found in even the most average existence. But no matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend, or sustaining a long, close relationship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the other nor of the self. The ultimate touchstone is witness, the privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another to have walked with them and to have believed in them, and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span, on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. Here's a chat with my dear friend David Brooks. Kick off with where you grew up and tell me about your family. I was born in Hackensack, New Jersey. You know the Hackensack Ford Fire in 88, same town. I lived in Jersey up until I was about seven or eight years old. 2003, I'm 29 now. 2002, 2003, we left Jersey. And I like to tell people I grew up in Laga Vista, just west of Austin, little lake town. We call it the podunk side of Lake Travis. The other side's the hoity-toity side. Yeah, I grew up in Laga Vista on the lake. I have a little sister. My mother's a flight attendant. My father, he's worked in construction his entire life. So we lived in Lago. Lago is like a really cool place to grow up. I don't have memories of going to playgrounds, really right? Like as a kid, like I was just in the woods. Me and my buddies, we would build forts and then find like couches that were next to dumpsters and drag them into the woods and build forts around the the couches and stuff. Yeah, it was was a really cool place to live on the lake. Can't really beat that. You were saying your dad wasn't much of a disciplinarian, but your mom was? My dad was definitely like a buddy. Sometimes he would try to be. As I started getting older, it was easy to be a little rebellious. Yeah, my mom... She grew up in Switzerland. She had a little bit different idea of discipline than most people my age or her age, I guess. The German spoon, she'd pull my ear or whatever, but I didn't get in trouble too much. Your parents split when you were 16? Yeah. So my parents split up when I was 16. It was pretty rough. 
I mean, at that age, number one, right? Like it's hard. Your whole kind of reality is just kind of blown apart. But on top of that, we grew up in a small town and everybody knew everybody. There were some things that I had discovered that were not very good. And yeah, I feel like when that went down, the best way to describe it for me was like, I just felt alone. There's one thing I remember specifically, like when it, when it all went down, like I would grab a tackle box and a fishing rod and I would walk down to the lake and fish at the exact same spot every night. And I would just fish and cast and I never caught a fish, <laughs> but, but I would just, yeah, spend time on the lake and try and work through it. What was school like for you? I guess I could kind of backtrack a little bit if that's cool. 9-11 happened. We were across the Hudson. My mom's a flight attendant. I remember all of it. I was conscious. I was young, but I was conscious. And so my mom being a flight attendant, that it kind of freaked everybody out. But my parents wanted to get out of the, the city. They wanted to get away from the city because of all that. So my father was very much like Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity kind of stuff. And I would go to work with him and I would hear things. And and so after 9-11, I was like seven or eight years old. Like, I'm going to go to the Marine Corps. Like, that's what I'm going to do. So my entire life and personality revolved around that. Like, that's where my head was. And that was the direction that I was going to go. Like, we got attacked by Osama bin Laden or whoever. And like, I want to go. And I was like seven or eight years old. And so that stuck with me even when I moved to Texas. And having the woods was great. Woods and BB guns, like it was on. I kept that up until about seventh or eighth grade. And I was a pretty good student back then when I was pretty disciplined and I would always read books and watch shows and I'd do my homework and pretty good student up until seventh grade. Middle school is weird for every kid, right? I was never really good at sports, right? Like I was like, I was usually the B team cat. I wasn't usually the first one to get picked. Seventh grade rolled around and I started hanging out with the wrong crowd, if you will, at that age. And that's when my hair got long and I wore tie dyes and loafers and a bandana around my head and listened to the good old Grateful Dead. Yeah, school just kind of just became not for me. I was playing music. I grew up playing music with a lot of people in Lago that I still keep in touch with. One of my best friends, he played bass growing up. I have pictures of us when we were in seventh or eighth grade, and he's a medic in the city, so I get to work with him every once in a while. You skipped out on school a lot? In high school, yeah. Kind of back to the divorce thing, right? But I think I was freshman in high school when that went down. And I finished out my freshman year in Lago Vista on the, over on the west side. Then I moved to Cedar Park, which is a suburb just outside northwest of Austin. A lot bigger school. Like in Lago, I had maybe 110 people in my grade. In Cedar Park, I had like a thousand. So I went to Cedar Park, had a bunch of buddies there. Again, when I say I was hanging out with the wrong crowd in Lago, it, it wasn't harmful. It wasn't bad. It was just kids being kids. And then I went to Cedar Park and that's when it started to become harmful and really bad. I'd skip school a lot, but my sister went with my mother. They moved uh, near Waco and I stayed with my dad. My dad worked construction, kind of doing everything. We lived in a one bedroom apartment and neither of us slept in the bedroom. He slept on the couch and I slept on an air mattress 
And so he was having a really hard time providing. We didn't have a car. So, so I would skip school to go to work. I'd go to work with him. And I did that for about a year and a half, all of my sophomore year. I stayed under the radar. I went to school just enough to where I wouldn't get in trouble. My junior year of high school, I got a letter in the mail that said, hey, you need to go talk to somebody because you're about to get a court case for not showing up to school. I would skip most of the time so that I could go be on the job site and work construction. You talked about in your uh, write-up about always being the little guy and learning to work harder than everyone else. So talk to me about that. I definitely am. I'm not a, a big specimen of a human by any means. I'm, I mean, right now I'm like 5'9", 170, but I've grown a lot. When I first started in the fire service, I was a hundred and maybe 130 pounds when I was yeah 18. I don't know if it ever actually was the case, but but in my head, I always thought that there was something I had to prove and it wasn't going to be through brute force or strength. It was just going to be through getting up again and going harder and working harder and outlasting everybody else. So that was kind of, I mean, that was kind of the tone. Kind of going back to the high school thing, like Cedar Park, there were some pretty well-to-do families and kids around. And there were times where I, I, got, I would get pretty bent out of shape that, that I would have to miss a lot of things because I had to work and I built a lot of resentment for it. Now I look back and I appreciate it. I was just had to kind of put my mind to something and, and get it done. And if it doesn't work the first time, maybe I'll get it the second time or maybe the third. Is your medic buddy, is that Hunter? Yeah. You mentioned he was pretty grounded and mature for his age. He was one of the bad kids too with the long hair in Lago when it was real friendly, not harmful. I remember we were supposed to get out of school and go to the gym and work out for athletics in the off season or whatever. And we'd be like, no, like we got way better things to do than that. And we walked everywhere. Right. So we, I remember walking and Hunter's like, Hey man, I'm out. I got to go make dinner for my brother and my mom. And for some reason that stuck with me a lot. Like he was always putting himself aside to take care of his responsibility. Like he grew up without a dad at home. He did a great job. And so even back then, like maybe I didn't recognize it then, but he impacted my life a lot just in that, right? <laughs> what was the first exposure to the fire service then? You're doing these construction jobs. What brought that forward? I guess I'm, I'm pretty cliche in that my parents tell stories of when I was like two years old, running to the window and there was a car wreck outside and I wouldn't leave until all the lights were gone. So that's what they tell me. I actually still have a bunker coat from when I was a toddler, little dress up one. As far as my first exposure, I, I don't even really know. It's just always kind of been there. It's kind of odd when I think, when I was a kid, when I thought of firefighters, I didn't think of hose or water or ladders or axes. It was a torch, like a cutting torch. And I'm not sure if I would go to work with my dad when I was a kid and he did a lot of jobs in Manhattan. So I don't know if we walked by a rescue one or something and they're working on a torch or I, I don't know what it is, but the torch for some reason in my head, every time I see it, I, I use it now, right? It like gives me that same feeling. It's always kind of been there. And then I got in a real bad car wreck with some buddies out doing debauchery. We slid off the road and hit a tree. Helicopter came, obviously a couple engines. One of my buddies was working on the engine and he was there for it. And once that happened, like I remember feeling so helpless where we hit the tree, my buddy like hit his head on the tree. 
thankfully everybody survived. But I remember feeling helpless. And like, after that, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Then a bunch of stuff went down and, and I was working construction. I got fed up. I have no way to go to college. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to go to the Navy. So I had the wreck, right? I was in Cedar Park and I decided I want to volunteer. And so I showed up at a fire station, Valente Fire Department, single station fire department that runs maybe 300, 400 calls a year. And I walked in that place and I said, hey, I'm 17. I want to be a firefighter. Teach me something. Like, will you just show me something? Show me what I need to do. Like, I'll show up every day, every shift. And that's what I did. I would go to work or I'd go to school. And afterward, I would I would show up to the station and those guys went out of their way to just put me in gear, put me on air, run me through some search stuff. They took me in, really. That fire department, they're a big part of the story a little bit later. So I had been popping in there. There was a guy named there's a guy named Hudge that was working there at the time. I was at the job site with my dad. I got real fed up because I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to be a firefighter. I had no idea how to do it. I didn't have money for college, nothing. So I said, hey, I'm out, like I'm leaving. And so I found a Navy recruiter, and I was just going to go to the Navy, figure it out, and then I can go to college after that for free. But before I went to the Navy recruiter, I stopped at the fire station and went to talk to those guys. And Hudge was working there. And I told him what I was going to do. And he looked at me like I was stupid. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, go to, there's a, a county department back then. It was 2012. There was a county department that would pay you $600 a month to go to their academy. And you'd get your EMT and your fire cert. But you were there Monday through Friday. So you had to figure out how to live on 600 bucks a month. And so that day I put in my application and stuff like that and went down that path. So that, that derailed the whole Navy idea. And then a month before the Academy. Ooh, yeah. Like I said, I was, my dad and I were living in that apartment. We didn't have a car. We were living in a single bedroom apartment. The bedroom was used for like storage boxes. He slept on the couch and I slept on an air mattress on the ground. My entire life growing up, I had this thing about sleeping by my dad. When my parents were together in Lago, like my dad slept on the couch, but I would sleep on the other couch. And there was always a thing where I just like, I just felt like I had to be there for some reason. So fast forward, it was September of 2011. I go to sleep, he goes to sleep and I wake up because I hear him gasping and I look over. I'm like, what the hell? I was like, dad. And I go over to him. I'm like trying to wake him up. He's breathing, but it was agonal respirations, right? Like he was gasping. He wouldn't wake up. So I called 911. I was freaking out. So like I had seen the ladder company drive into my apartment complex. And for some reason I ran downstairs and opened the gate. And then I ran back upstairs and I'm on the phone with the operator and they told me to get him on the ground and do CPR. I didn't even try and get him on the ground. Um, and I just started doing CPR. And now I know it was Cedar Park Quint 2 showed up in Williamson County EMS and they took over. My dad had some like cardiac history, but nothing of significance. The only big thing, and this is the only thing that I told them, was that he takes a lot of methadone. I don't know exactly what they did 
I don't know if they got pulses back prior to Narcan or how that works, but they ended up getting pulses back and they're working them upstairs. I was downstairs sitting by the rig. I had nobody to call. The person I called was one of my best friends. I called his mom. She would let me stay over there a lot. So I called her and I said, Hey, my, my dad's dead. Like there's fire trucks and ambulances. I don't know what's going on. He's dead. Will, will you come over here? We didn't have a car. So she came over. Someone came out and told me, Hey, they got pulses back. They're going to take him to the hospital. And I remember them seeing, <laughs> I feel so bad for the guys now. He was on the third floor. So they had to go down three flights. The backboard doing CPR is gnarly, but they could take him to the hospital. And my, my buddy's mom took me up there too, but we stopped at a Seven Eleven to get coffee. And I remember seeing a cop there. He was at the call. Somehow we got to talk and I was like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm supposed to start the fire academy in a month. And this goes down. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he gave me some words of inspiration, right? Like, hey, you're going to do it. Keep going. Like, no matter what, you keep going. That stuck with me. Anyway, I go to the hospital and it's all kind of a blur. My mother and my sister came down to say goodbye, essentially. He maintained a pulse. The doctors are real wishy-washy. My mom sister came by for a minute and then they left. And so I was there. I had power of attorney. I was 18 and doctors were giving me prognosis. And it was just, well, we don't really know until we try to extubate. So I was there throughout that whole thing just by myself. But I will say that the guys of Valente Fire, the fire station I would just show up to, like they would show up. They'd give me some cash for food. They said, if you need anything, call me. I ended up calling them. <laughs> so we ended up getting evicted. I was homeless and ended up living at the fire station for a couple of weeks. Fast forward a couple of weeks in the hospital with my dad and he became conscious, was talking, started having insane withdrawals. He was taking, from what I can remember, 440 milligrams of methadone a day. And growing up, the last weekend of the month was always the sick month for dad. Because that's when you get dope sick. He would get a, his prescription monthly, but he was always taking more. And so he'd run out that last week. And so he'd be dope sick, chills and fever and stuff. Then he said, you know what? He always blamed it on... Uh, <laughs> He always blamed it on Anna Nicole Smith. After Anna Nicole Smith died, they decided that they, would, they wouldn't they would give large doses of methadone anymore. They would just prescribe larger amounts in smaller pills, 10 milligrams or whatever. We went from the monthly dope sickness to every week. We didn't have a car. So every week we would walk from our apartment to the doctor's office, which was like four or five miles. And then from the doctor's office, we'd go to a recovery meeting, we'd go to that meeting, hopefully get a ride home. If not, we'd walk back to the apartment. Like he would wake up towards the end. Like I would, I would go somewhere else to sleep. I'd go to the fire station or wherever. He would call me and say, Dave, there's spiders coming out of the vents. They're cleaning, but they're trying to get me. I need you to get here right now. Stuff like that, right? Just losing it. <laughs> and I remember a doctor saying that they were going to discharge him. And he's talking like that. And one thing led to another. A security guard may, may not have like thrown my little 125 pound ass up against the wall and said, you're not going to talk like that. I was like, you can't let him go. 
he's not there. He's not right. So he was withdrawing. Meanwhile, while that's going on, okay, like he's alive. We just got an eviction notice. I have to figure out what the hell we're doing at the house with the apartment. So I tried to clean up and pack up as much stuff as I could, threw it into a storage unit and left a bunch of stuff and just bailed. Like I had no other option. Now I'm weeks away from starting the academy. So it was just a scramble. So how was that first week given the lead up? I feel like I should backtrack just a little bit. When my dad was finally able to be discharged from the hospital, this was prior to me starting day one, I had called my uncle in New Jersey and I said, hey, I need help. Like He can't stay here. Like I got to do this. I ended up flying my dad to New Jersey. He stayed up there with my uncle so he could get better. And I stayed down here. So I showed up day one of the academy and I really don't have much recollection except for like, hey, like it's time to do work. I didn't feel sorry for myself or you guys don't know what I went, like nothing like that. It was just, hey, like I'm, I'm here. Like I'm super stoked to be here. And I was all in, man. Like I was so excited. I'd been training for it. And you're right up, you called your class, the greatest class that never existed. I went to two academies. The first academy was in the county in 2012. And then the greatest class that, that never existed was at AFD four years ago. AFD class 128. We were the first class on our list. You're so disconnected in the academy, right? Like your job is to show up 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning and you don't get home till 6.30, 7 o'clock at night and you sleep and you take an Epsom salt bath and roll out. But people started talking about this COVID-19 thing on the news and that's when COVID hit. We were in the academy, in Austin Fires Academy, when COVID took off and it got real weird real fast. So we say we're the best class that never existed because we never got a class photo. We never had a graduation, like nothing. Yeah, they ended up splitting us up. They took the pre-certs, the ones that were already certified as firefighters. They took them and just like get them out onto the line while the rest of the, the class finished up. You ended up jumping departments, but give me a little recap of your time at the first one. I was 19 when I finished the academy. I worked part-time for that fire department that put me through the academy. I ended up part-timing at Valente Fire, that single station department that helped me out that I would volley at. But then I got on full-time with San Marcos Hayes County EMS, just south of Austin, where Texas State University is as an EMT. I worked there and then I started running with people. And so I just put applications in everywhere. Nobody told me no. And so I took all the jobs. Filing my taxes was a nightmare because I, I had to do six W-2s. But I was young. I was 19, 20. All my friends were at the firehouse. I would just have a box of uniforms in the back of my truck. And I would bounce from department to department. I'd work my shift on the box. And then I'd get off. And I'd go to Manshack. And I'd work a 24. Oh, Valente needs a guy. So I'd go over to Valente. And it was great. Like... It was fun. I worked county departments. I volleyed a little bit outside of San Marcos. I was just trying to get as much exposure and experience as I could, but I also didn't get it. I was too young and naive to really benefit from all the experience that I was getting, if that makes sense. Yeah. You said you thought you had to figure it out way too soon. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, all the stuff that I'd worked so hard to get to where I was, man, I got this. This isn't difficult at all. Firefighting, it's easy. 
but I remember in the back of my head being so scared, like so afraid that someone was going to catch me, right? Like I didn't want to go stretch hose, right? Like I didn't want the last thing. Remember I said I was, I was a little guy, 130, 140 pounds. Last thing I wanted to do was open up a line in front of people. I didn't know how to manage a hose line. Like when you were probing at Lake Travis, you said you had two fires in a shift. You had a couple humbling moments in each of them. Yeah, it got me. I was a probe at Lake Travis and we went to one fire and it was a car fire that extended into the garage and it was getting into the house. And I stepped off, made the stretch and I go to mask up and I'm so discombobulated and I finally get all my stuff on. And I look up and my lieutenant's got the nozzle in his hand and he's putting water on the fire. Oh God. So I had to go up and it was pretty defeating being the probe. He's saying, hey, boss, could I have the line? And so it was really embarrassing. After that, I was like, I'm never going to let that happen ever again. Go back to the house. We're hanging out. We go to sleep. And then about one o'clock, we, we catch another fire, which was not common. It was not common to go to multiple fires in one shift at that fire department. We go to the second one. As we're pulling up, we were the third arriving engine, tag a hydrant. And the boss comes up to me and says, hey, we're getting reports of victims. Grab some irons. We need to go search. And they had been defensive. So I grabbed the irons and I had some people around me. And I go to this door. They say, hey, we think there's somebody in this room. And the door's locked. So I take the forks and I stick it in the door and I look back and there's nobody behind me. Like there's nobody there to help me. And so I ended up just dropping the Halligan bar and kicking the door in. And did the worst primary search you could you could do. Just kind of peeked around. Yeah, you're saying how you dropped the halogen because it felt kind of useless in your hands. It was absolutely useless because I didn't know how to use it. I've heard people use the analogy like, if I was to play Jimi Hendrix's guitar, I can't play like Jimi Hendrix. Like I had no idea how that tool worked. I had those really humbling experiences and, and became really hungry. Nobody knew about that right? Like people didn't see me. And so I got, I got humbled real quick and decided that I just, I needed to figure it out. So I had reached out to a San Marcos firefighter. I guess he was a driver at the time. Now he's a captain, Brad Mason, the vice president of the Fool's Chapter. I called him and I was like, hey man, how do I boost morale in my firehouse? That was my initial question. He said, what are you talking about? Like t-shirts and challenge coins and hats? And I was like, yeah, like how do I make people want to be here stuff and he was like it's not it's not t-shirts or logos or stickers like you got to put in work and he asked me a question he said do you know how to use every single tool on your rig and i was like no he said well you're you're stealing from the customers and he was pretty pretty blunt about it. he's a pretty blunt gentleman that kind of hit me i was like you are right and so i, I kind of dove in with him and, and I explained to him what had happened to me with the Halligan bar and, and the mask ups. And he started to expose me to the counterculture of the fire service. That's what I call it at least that we don't just got this right. So I dove in, I read the FDNY forcible entry manual as many resources as I could. And I dove into forcible entry and I figured out exact my progression. Right. And I learned mechanical advantage and why the forks are beveled the way that they are and why the ads end is notched. I dove in full speed. 
And then I started learning how to mask up with my gloves on, trying to get fast at that because I didn't want to get beat by another lieutenant ever again. You said you built a hose bed in the back of your pickup. Yeah, so that was at Austin Fire. I actually built a hose bed prop at Lake Travis. <laughs> I don't know if these guys are going to hear this, but I built a hose bed prop with some buddies. We, we got some materials from a construction site, built a hose bed prop, and I would write, I would graffiti it, right? With work is the answer and work over luck, motivational things, and people, people busting my chops about it all the time, which is good. I needed it. While I was at Lake Travis, I had a newfound respect for the job and passion for it, as well as realizing I am not as good as I think I am. And I'm a liability. And that's when it all kind of got real. I worked with a buddy on another shift. He, he and I got hired together and we're talking about this stuff. And I was pretty straightforward. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. So we were kind of in this thing together. One day he said, yeah, man, like I never, I never want to go to a call and in the back of my head be thinking, oh, I hope they don't ask me to do this because I'm not comfortable doing it. I think we all have, we've all had that experience before where it's like, oh, okay, they want us to go to the roof. God forbid you get that rope call. When was the last time you got on rope? When was the last time you built a system? So always having that in the back of my head. He planted that in there, man, and it stuck with me. That impacted my career a lot. Makes me just want to do better and try harder. You said you worked EMS in a college town too when you're getting on? Yeah, I was running on kids that I went to school with. I did my time on the box. Now I appreciate every moment of working on the ambulance. It was brutal. We were busy. I got hired there when I was 19 and I wasn't equipped to do that job. Like I wasn't mentally equipped to respond to people's emergencies. Honestly, I thought I was, I was so young and I was running on young people and I just, I began to feel alienated from my generation. I felt like, man, like these people can go out and party and have such a just careless. And yesterday home dude ran out in front of the Sigma Chi house and got smoked by a car and they don't even realize it. They don't even realize how dangerous this is. I, I went to this apartment complex not that long ago and found a 19-year-old kid with his pants around his ankles, overdosed. I couldn't spend time with those people. Like I just couldn't. And I felt, I wasn't mad at them for it, but I just, like I said, I, I just felt alienated from my generation. Like I, I was not able to do the things that they were able to do because of the line of work that I was in. And I don't know if that's grandiose or egotistical, or just didn't sit right because you had a different perspective on the world. Yeah, absolutely. I developed some resentment there for sure. But it was also really good. Like I learned, I don't like to say that 80% of our job is EMS, at least in the city. I think we boost those numbers a little bit more than what they actually are. But we do run a lot of medical calls. And my time on the ambulance impacted my patient care immensely. I feel like I know what the medics are going to be asking for or looking for. So I'm able to start going down that path before they get there. And the experience of, of seeing certain things and being able to put together differential diagnoses pretty quickly was really helpful. I worked with some really, really good medics that really cared about it and were really good. And if we got on the job to help people, EMS calls sure are a lot of opportunities to help people. 
are we picky about, oh, I don't want to help in that way. I want to help in these other ways. For sure. It was tough, man. My first partner there, he was my FTO. He trained me and he was old, salty, just cranky. And he's working with <laughs> a poor guy I had to work with a 19 year old kid, 20 year old kid. And he would roll his eyes at me all the time. But that guy made me every day I would come into work and he said, all right, we're checking out the box. He would make me set up for an RSI. So I would have to put out the sucks and the VEC. We used VEC back then, all of the tubes and everything. And I would have to have it completely set up. And he would look at me and every time he said, you're only as good as your basic. Because I was an EMT basic. He's like, medic's only as good as their basic. So I need you to know this. He would drill me on the respiratory protocol. I knew that thing like the back of my hand. They instilled in me some pretty good medicine. And I'm super grateful for it. I always will be. And report writing. It makes report writing a lot easier now too. (laughs) When did things start to go sideways for you personally? I think it's always been. We talked about my dad's overdose, but like growing up with my dad, both of my parents are in recovery. That was always a part of my life. Go to meetings or go to the rooms or whatever. And so that, that was a real common theme growing up, both of my parents. And, but what I didn't realize until I got older was that my dad was still in active addiction. So in the nineties, he was in a scaffold collapse and hurt his back real bad. And back then they gave methadone for pain and he just got on it and welcome to the, the opioid epidemic. So growing up with my dad in active addiction, as a kid, even when I was in New Jersey, I remember watching, we would watch, I would stay up late with him because he'd come home from work and we'd eat milk and cookies and we'd watch like TV land or something, whether like we'd watch emergency or gun smoke. He would have his milk in his hand and I'm sitting next to him and he would just fall asleep and then spill the milk. And sometimes he'd spill the milk on me, but it took me years to realize that that was him nodding off like the heroin nod. He would fall asleep sitting up and just hunched over, leaned over. And I just thought that was, man, dad works really hard. Like He's at work all day. He's busting his back. He comes home really tired. But I realized years later, like, no, like that was, that was the equivalent of what heroin addicts do. And I remember my mom and my grandparents almost had like an intervention with him. Like, hey, you got to get off the methadone. They were like, go get surgery, this, that, and the other thing. And it was a big whole ordeal. He ended up not getting off of it. And it eventually killed him. My dad's still alive. And we still don't know if it was intentional or not. Like, he doesn't know. He doesn't know if he tried to kill himself. I know that that was an option for him. When I was a kid living with him, he would tell me about his plans. Sometimes I just think about going on the wrong side of the road. I didn't know that that was such a bad thing. I had no idea. I didn't really see it coming. So little did I know alcohol abuse and drug abuse ran in my family the way that it did because it was so normalized. Like it was just so normal. Yeah, my parents don't drink. Growing up with my parents in recovery, but one in recovery, but also not. I think it's genetic. I think I've always had it. I think it's always been in me. I remember having feelings of self-harm. That's, I don't know if that's the right word, but I remember just not being a fan of myself, just feeling alone, like I was missing something. Like, why am I so different than everybody else? 
I always felt like I was the second pick or the tag along. And again, like, I don't know if that was actually true or if that was just, that's just what my brain was telling me. I started experimenting and messing around real young. And then it started getting crazy, 16, 17, up until I was 21. I'd been maintaining this this facade of everything's good to go. I'm a wild young guy, you know, <laughs> working on the ambulance and working all those other part-time jobs. And it was ACL weekend in 2015, Austin City Limits. And I bought three-day passes for myself and my sister. We went to day one of ACL and she participated in the festival and I participated in debauchery and drugs and alcohol. And woke up the next day in San Marcos. I rode my motorcycle to the fire station where there was an ambulance. My friend Sue was was working. And when I woke up that morning, I I was done. I was over it. I was over feeling the way that I felt. I was over the drugs and the alcohol. I was over the loneliness. Like I was just done. So I woke up that morning with a plan. I was like, well, let me just stop, hop in the box real quick, get an IV to help with this hangover a little bit. And then I'll go home and follow through. My friend Sue, Sue Hugert, she still works down in San Marcos. She was working on the ambulance and she gave me an IV or talking or whatever. I got the IV. I don't know what, what I said to her, but as I'm stepping out of the ambulance with this plan in my head and with me knowing that it was going to be the last time she saw me, I'm walking out of the ambulance and she says, Hey, have you ever thought about getting sober? And it punched me square in the mouth. I was like, that is an idea. Might as well. So we'll try. I called people and I, I went to meetings nonstop. I was in those recovery meetings all day and I would sit in the back and just listen. I sat in death row, so we call it death row. And that was a new beginning for me. So that was on October 3rd, 2015. I haven't picked up a drink since and I owe it all to Sue for saying such a simple thing. Hey, have you ever thought about getting sober? She saved my life. Without those words, I can say confidently that I would not have the things that I have today. Hands down. Like I would not have my family, my daughter, my wife, my job. There's no way that I could ever repay her back. Her and all the other people that have that have been involved along the way. So the way that I have to do that is try and give back to other alcoholics and addicts on a daily basis. It's a daily amends, if you will. That's how I try and pay her back. You call people that are struggling like that your people. Those are my people. And, and all the guys I work with know too. That's the thing about addicts and alcoholics. I mean, you can equate it to the fire service, right? Firefighters don't want to go and talk to a therapist that has no idea what it's like to be on the job. Whenever they say, oh yeah, like, like Tanya Glenn is a great example. Like that's what she does. You get some street cred for that. Same thing goes for alcoholics and addicts. Like I can go in there and speak their language, right? Fields talks about the jargon. Well, in recovery, there's a jargon too. There's actual jargon. I, and I can spot them and I'll be real subtle with some of the things that I say. But when I find out it's them, man, like, like 
the guys kind of know like they're just going to do their thing let brooks talk (laughs) (laughs) and they always know that i'm going to stay back and it's we're going to spend a little bit longer on this call than normal those are my people especially the ones that are in relapse or they've admitted it right like it's a little bit tough to pick up a, a drunk dude at a bus stop who is not trying to get sober isn't ready but the people that are like i can't do this anymore i need help or they're in tears like yeah i relapsed six months ago i had a year like those people like i care so much for those people that's the most difficult place they can be and then they call 911 they have a bunch of strangers show up poking and prodding and then one of them can say hey i've been where you're at maybe not exactly but that feeling of desperation and of defeat like i know exactly where you're at the other day we ran a, a an overdose. I mean, we're running the fentanyl just like everybody else, right? An overdose at a bus stop. The girlfriend had given a couple rounds of Narcan and the guy came around. We bring him into the back of the box. And I say this almost to every one of them before I leave. But he's in the back of the box and he's conscious and he's talking. He's like, and, I, and I said, hey, man, you don't deserve this. You're 22 years old, overdosing at a bus stop. You don't deserve to live like this. I want you to know that I give a fuck about you. I care about you and that you never have to feel this way ever again. You just have to make a decision. And that dude specifically just started bawling. I mean, even the ones, I ran another one where it was a overdose cardiac arrest and the guy didn't make it, but his buddy that was using with him was in there too. I said the exact same thing to him. I don't know if it's going to stick with him. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but Those are things that people in those scenarios need to hear. They just need to hear that somebody cares about them. It's just a little bit of a little bit of a bonus that that I've been where they were in some way, shape, or form, and that I have some years of sobriety. I don't know if they just hear it differently, but hopefully it helps. And I mean those things. Like I really, really do care about those people a lot. I grew up with them, right? Like both of my parents, my uncles, they're my people. That's my one non-negotiable. It's like, hey, we get on one of these calls and I give you a look like I just need a minute and I'm not going to budge on it. I don't care if dinner, if it's dinner time, this is my thing. And everybody's all about it. I can be a whisperer sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned one talk about the worst call you ever had and not necessarily in detail, but sort of what came after. Walk me through that. I won't go into great detail. I had a few years of sobriety and I had come to realize that I was not as good as I thought I was, which had opened me up to the the counterculture of the fire service, putting the victims first and stuff like that. We were at a station. I'm not even going to name the department. We were at the house. We get a call for a fall. But when we get dispatched to it, it says that we're responding with another engine company. And we show up in the, the call text. It was a pregnant lady fell off of a balcony. It was a real high balcony. So three, four stories and a two-year-old. And we're on the way there. I'm driving the engine and we all kind of know like, oh God, the boss that's sitting next to me takes his headset off and just starts crying on the way to the call. 20 plus years on the job and he's facing his hands. Like, I don't know if he was praying or, but she's losing it. So I'm driving to this call. I'm like, all right, guys, like this is about to be horrible, but we got a job to do and let's go do it. And we'll deal with it later. So we drive, we get there, and it was murder-suicide. Mom was pregnant and threw her two-year-old daughter off the balcony. 
and then she jumped and she was pregnant so horrible and the father is standing there it's a pretty long story when it comes down to the specifics but entire family decimated in a horrible way we went back to the station everybody knew it was like hey that was just bad we're not going to talk just go back go to sleep carry on and the next day I was taking a, a class with the fools. It was just a lecture. Shift change was seven. So I got up, I get on the road and I'm, and I'm just, I have that feeling in my gut. Like, oh my God. Like I gotta, I gotta get this off my chest. I called Rick George or did I call you? I might've called you first, but it was really early. So I don't know if you answered, but I called Rick George. I had developed that relationship. That's kind of another story, but I called him and he said, hey, what's going on, man? And I said, I need to talk. And he said, what's going on? And it all just came out. Like, I couldn't get a word out, dude. Like, I was just, I was a mess. I'm driving. I'm just, it was just horrible. And Rick is on the other side of the line, just like, hey, man, like, it's all right. Do what you got to do. Keep doing your thing. And I finally got to a point where I could tell him what happened. And... I, I don't even remember exactly what, we said, what he said in the conversation. But it stuck out to me because everybody's got to have somebody where they can answer the phone and not say a word, but know that something's up, right? Like that was huge for me. Like for me to just be able to sit on the line with another man and just who knew what I was going through, but didn't know specifically. And I just let it out, dude. And then talk through it. And that was huge, man. I hope that I could be that to somebody. You and Rick are the kind of my go-to guys. Like, you know that. I talk to Rick pretty regularly. I talk to you pretty regularly. You and I have never met in person. But I feel like there's something about that, though, right? Where you and I are tight, but you're also at somewhat of a distance, right? So I also feel like I'm not going to be judged. That hit me hard. I didn't even have a family at that point. It was just horrible. But I will say, like, having somebody that you can call, man, like that was that was a game changer for me. And after that, I started to be able to recognize when I was having post-traumatic stress, right? Like after a call, it could be minor or it could be huge. Like I know I have that feeling. I know that that feeling means bad things. So I recognize it and I do the things that I need to I need to do in order to to get through that. One of the things like, like my wife knows, like I'll come home from work and I won't say much or I won't text her much or call her on the way and I get home. And all I have to say is I don't have anything mentally, physically or spiritually for you at all today. Like I'm drained. And then she kind of knows something's up. She handles it really well. She's awesome. I think after that, after that call, that's when I really kind of recognize that knot in my stomach. Like, oh, something's just bothering me a little bit. It's really key that you mentioned post-traumatic stress, right? Because I think that's one of the things with PTSD. Everybody thinks it's either nothing or it's PTSD. I think what you just talked on right there is that we all experience PTS often through the job. We just work through it, hopefully in healthy ways, but you can have PTS multiple, multiple times in your career and in your life. It may not develop into PTSD. 
that's really important for people to understand that it's not all or nothing. Yeah. And I mean, I work one of my best buds. I call him my, my <laughs> he's my best worst friend. He's like, no, I'm good. Like he's good a lot of the time, right? It's not that he lacks empathy. He's just, he's just good, right? Like he, he doesn't experience it the way that I do. And that's okay. Like, cool, man. Like I'm jealous, but also there's a human side to it also. Like that is a normal human reaction to an abnormal situation. Like that's how it was explained to me. And it's okay to feel like that sometimes. Where it becomes not okay is when we start hurting other people or, or hurting ourselves when we're not not addressing it. So I've been thinking about the abnormal situation thing differently recently that they're horrible, they're tragic, they're difficult to process. Sometimes things are despicable. They go against your morals and your values, but these things happen all the time, so they are normal. I worry that if we if we don't accept that, that these things are a normal part of the world, they're normal occurrences, we just happen to see them more often than other people. But if we keep calling them abnormal experiences, then somehow we might start thinking that we're abnormal because we're so close to them and we experience them so much. So I think we should just see them as awful and we wish they didn't happen, but they are normal. And so it's normal that they occur. We're normal for experiencing them. And then we just have to process it, right? Yeah, that's true. I had a guy the other day. It's like, oh man, like you should come get on the job. He's like, I cannot deal with the things that you guys see. And I was even like, oh, like you don't see it all the time, but it does happen, right? Like it's it's a thing. I have some buddies that I'm really glad where we are, where we are in the fire service as far as talking about these things. And and I mean, I think I think this podcast has helped it a lot. I know there's there's a lot of guys out there that have been so rocked by something, they just had no idea what to do. And so they would just they get off the job. The city has started um, giving leave for stuff like that, injury on the job. There's a lot of really good resources that we have too, right? IFF. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that too, that not everybody, maybe you got five years in you, maybe you got 10, maybe you got 15, maybe you got a whole career and there's no judgment on anybody if they want to do five years of this work and some people want to do 30. That's just a personal thing. So, but you're right about the resources. Hopefully people get better regardless, regardless of whether they go off and come back, regardless of whether, you know, whether they want to continue or not. You, at the end, we just want everyone to be better. Well, and someone's got to do it. And there is so much more good that I found in this job than I, than I have bad right? Like all of those experiences have just like, it gives me such a, such a great appreciation and it's made me stronger. Yeah. I've said before, it's given me more than it's ever taken away. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned heading to the fools for some training that day. Tell me how you got involved with them. I called Brad Mason when, when I was <laughs> at my fire service rock bottom and he kind of just, Hey man, why don't you come? We ha we're having a meeting, whatever day, Sunday. Why don't you come by and check us out? Come hang out. And so I did and I ended up walking to a coffee shop with just a, a bunch of people that I wanted to be like one day, right? A lot of like things that I'd never heard, right? Like victims come first. I went four or five years in my career and that was never a driving force. My safety does not come first. So hearing that was like, whoa, and it was refreshing. And it was like, hey, like these guys are down. And these are dudes that work at busy houses that go to a lot of fires. And I just found these people and just stuck to them, stuck to them like glue. 
And I was like, teach me, show me something. Like, can I just call you? Right. And so I would call and I'd have problems at the firehouse or something or, or something on a call. And I would, I would call one of the, one of the guys that I knew or Brad or somebody, Zach King. And I would just get mentored and I would learn, I learned more, more from those phone conversations than I ever did in the years that, that I spent on fire trucks or ambulances, that mentality. I mean, it, it's completely changed the course of my career. I like to call like the fools. It's like my fire service AA, right? Like that's where I go to get my, my batteries recharged and like hear the good word. Mm-hmm. Stay and, on point, uh, stay on track. Yeah, exactly. The fools have been great. And, and I was lucky to take classes and, and go to conferences. And I applied that same method, right? Of going to a fool's meeting and finding people that I wanted to be like one day or had something that I didn't have or that I wanted and just like stuck to them. I applied that when I went to other conferences, right? That's how I got in touch with Rick George. I saw him smoking a cigar outside of a, I can't remember where it was in, in Indy at FDIC, but I just like walked up and started talking to him. Can I get your number? Can I just call you one day? And I hadn't talked to him. <laughs> that dude's nuts. I called him. I hadn't talked to him in probably six, six or nine months or something. And I called him and he's like, Hey, how's your dad doing? How's this? That? And I was like, how does this guy remember all this stuff? Like, it's insane. I feel super lucky to be able to just pick up the phone and call somebody like that. Right. I mean, if I could pass anything on to anybody else, like one of the things would be like, make people say no. What's the worst that's going to happen? Right. There's that meme that floats around that says, if they suck, mentor them. If if you don't mentor them, then you suck, right? If I'm a new guy that like, hey, right, I made up with the job. I want to learn more. I want to do the right thing. Can I get your number? And that dude's like, nah. Like, then I probably didn't want his number in the first place. The worst that they're going to say is no. That's how I ended up at the firehouse that I'm at today. Mike Heaney, he teaches all over the country, he teaches a great search class. I did that to him and I would blow his phone up. He's a busy guy. He talked to me and give me advice and mentor me. He invited me over to the firehouse one day to do some forcible entry training. I left there going, I'm going to work at this firehouse one day. And that's why I work now. Like you never know, you never know what doors is going to open. Like maybe you end up, you, you end up sending, sending a message to a dude that has a podcast. You <laughs> <laughs> become friends for life. Yeah, man. I guess the other part of that saying is if they suck, mentor them. If you won't mentor them, then you suck. If you do mentor them and they don't want to be mentored, then they suck. That's the part that they leave out. It's like you should still try, but there's, it's a relationship, right? Like they have to be coachable. And it's not that you are the mentor. Like you're the one that's going to give them everything they need to get. That's not the point. It's like you're just going to give them what you can. And if they won't accept that and try, then yeah, the point is just to try, right? Yeah, absolutely. I work in special operations in Austin, I work at station 14. We're kind of like the, the hub of the city. So we cover downtown. We have a big, our rescue company has a, a crazy still territory. The rescue goes to a lot of fires, a lot of fires for us. We don't get probies out of the academy. We only get them for a module and a module might be maybe 10 shifts. So they're doing their, their spec ops rotation, right? So there's some checkoffs that we try and get through as fast as we can, right? Because they're they're pretty dated, but we try to instill some like some firemanship, some good mentality and aggressiveness. 
as much as we can. And we, we battled for a while with like, well, do we stretch hose every shift or, but we have these probies that we're trying to train, but we're also doing, we still do our hydrants. We still have our inspections. We have our CEs. All of the special operations stuff still has to happen. We make it work, right? Like we still get out and we're still stretching lines and doing that stuff. But something that I kind of came to realize is that I got to try and give them a nugget. And I would try and give them, they ride the nozzle. We have an engine and a rescue. So I try to give them a whiteboard quick, like, hey, this is what we expect out of the nozzle. But that didn't really stick, right? It's a lot of information that I just blast them with. I came to realize that just masking up, if I can instill in them the reasons why masking up fast is important, it's for the victims, right? I give them, I had this whole spiel. I had to make a class for my instructor one. So I have a slideshow. I haven't, I haven't pulled that out on any probies. <laughs> That'd be terrible, but, but I lined it all up, right? Like NFPA abolished the NFPA, but the NFPA says that our response time needs to be, I can't remember the specific number. It's like eight minutes. So I broke it all down and essentially just to say, this is the data. Time is not on our side, right? Like you're showing up and we learn our territory so that we don't have to follow a blue dot right? We know the fastest way to get to a certain box. We bunk out in the rig so that we can shave off seconds. But then all of a sudden we stretch the hose line fast so that we can just get there and take our time masking up. Like it doesn't make sense, right? At least in my head. First shift, I'll get the probian like, all right, dude, I put a camera on us. I film us. They mask up exactly how they would anywhere else in the city, exactly how they've practiced. Sometimes that's with gloves on, sometimes it's not, and I do my thing. They do it. Usually it's somewhere between 30 to 40 seconds, something like that. I was like, all right, cool. I set a timer for, let's just say it's 40 seconds. We're just going to sit here and stare at each other for 40 seconds, and I set a timer. And you'd be surprised at how long 40 seconds is <laughs> when you're just sitting there staring at another dude, right? <laughs> and then the timer goes off, and they're like, this Brooks dude's crazy, and I said, all right, well, now we're going to hold our breath for 40 seconds. And then you really realize 40 seconds is actually a long time when you can't breathe, mm -hmm. right? And they've actually been waiting longer than that. Yeah, exactly. We do that. And I said, all right, so this is how, here's some tips on how to get faster. I'm here to drill with you. I've like static sitting in the truck room, nothing going on, no tools in your hand. Like you can get pretty fast. I like to say that eight seconds there equates to about 20 on the fire ground, but I don't have to think about it. So I give them the tips and we work through some problems that they might have, whether they throw their helmet back or put it on their arm and we try and solve those problems. And then I tell them every shift for the time that you're here, I want you to just get three, three mask ups. It doesn't matter if it's at shift change, if it's at the end of the shift, in the middle of the night, like I don't care. Like I would just like you to try and get three. And then I kind of just let them do it. See if they're putting in the work. And obviously, like we know, like we're going to see them doing it. It says a lot, right? Whenever I walk out there, everybody's sitting around the, the table. We have shift change at noon. So we, we lunch together. You check the rigs, do all your things, come in, eat lunch. But I hear a, a pass device going off. I'm like, all right, like he's kind of getting it. And then they start to get into it, right? Like, oh, dude, like I'm going to beat you. Like, all right, let's go, dude. <laughs> Let's get it. But I've also had some where they just don't. It comes back to what you're saying, right? Like if they're not willing to put in the work for it, because that's all it is. 
That's all that is. I've heard people I've heard, I've heard people argue the point of being efficient with your gloves on and it blows my mind. Like all it takes is time and a little bit of sweat. Just got to practice it over and over. And I promise you'll get good at it. And what blows my mind too is that people will say no like you your dexterity is not good. You can't do it. Well, they also expect us to connect an EBSS to a down firefighter that's been in a collapse in a low visibility environment with our gloves on. And if you took your gloves off in that moment, they'd say, hey, don't take your gloves off. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, right? So that's a very simple thing that you can do every day that's going to take, even if you do nothing else, right? Like I have those days where I show up at work and I'm like, I'm not here. And on those days, like you just got to force yourself to do something. Sometimes it just looks like three mask ups. You wrote that you've done some pretty cheesy stuff while you worked to achieve a goal. What did you mean by that? So I think specifically what I was talking about, I was working at Lake Travis and that is a great place to work. Like they just didn't have what really what I was looking for at that time. I love those dudes out there and there's some really, really talented firefighters out there, but I just wanted to be busier, go to more fires. I put my name in the hat to go to Austin we had 7 a.m. shift change. I would get up at like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning and I would run prepping for the academy or something. And I would just run God knows how many miles. But I'd say stuff like, I'm an Austin firefighter. I'm an Austin firefighter, right? And I would write stuff on my walls. I'd memorize things and it kept me focused, man. And so far it's worked. <laughs> like that's the crazy thing. It's so far it's worked. I think that's the first time I've ever told anybody about that <laughs> in public sometimes we got to be our own hype man like it's okay that's just good self-talk man i think there's a benefit to putting reminders on your mirror in the morning right or to repeating something every day my mom always told me to read the secret i never did but <laughs> apparently i guess you're supposed to say stuff and it happens make a vision board well it's like looking for a certain vehicle or you, you buy a vehicle and next thing you know you're seeing it everywhere right it's just where your attention goes I don't know that that stuff's worked for me, man. Like it's a blessing and a curse. My, my poor wife hates it sometimes. Like when I pick something, like I pick something and just go full tilt. Like that is the thing that I'm doing and there's nothing that can stop me and I'm not going to get distracted by anything. Like I've had to learn to balance that. Or just be sure to pick good things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No doubt. That's where we're at right now. Like I have a goal that I'm working towards right now. I'm really excited and I'm currently in that like there's nothing that can stop me at like this is what I'm going to do. So hopefully it pans out. I'm going to put in the work. But that's that's the answer, man, right? Like work is the answer. That's one of the great things about our fools chapter. We've had kind of a rough go after COVID. The Lone Star Fools specifically like our chapter is about work, like putting in work, sweating together and training and that mentality has helped me a lot. Doing firefighter shit with your firefighter friends. Yeah. I like to put my gear on. Showing up to work, I, I work with absolute monsters. Like I said, Mike Heaney's on another shift. Like there's so many dudes that I work with that that have what I want. Each one of them gives me something. Like we have our little tiffs, obviously, like in between the shifts. But I want every crew at my firehouse at my house fire hands down like those are the dudes that i want showing up 
let's talk always and never. You wrote you wrote always and never. Give me your take on always and never. Only Sith deal in absolutes. Right. So it's from Star Wars. <laughs> we can't say always and never when it comes to this job. To a certain extent, I think that there's a balance of it. Like with that said, I just heard a, a lieutenant over at our sister company, 18s. He talks about when he trains with his crew and he prepares his crew for going to a fire, they train for the nine out of 10 fire, right? Like nine out of 10 times I'm stretching to the front door, nine out of 10 times. If I'm on the truck, whoever's behind me riding the OV positions going opposite. I always hear people never do that. Always do this. And it, it just irks me, right? Because I'll say it too. I'll catch myself sometimes like, no, I'll never hit a heart from the yard. Well, actually like, Deck gun attacks are pretty effective. I can't remember specifically why I wrote that down, but it's an easy way to deflect a full understanding of a situation. With that being said, like I feel like we got to be careful whose word we're taking for gospel. There's value in a lot of places. It took me a while to really understand, right? Especially like going out to different classes and taking different things. I'm lucky to be in a place where I get to put into work a lot of the things that I've learned and I'm starting to realize that there's some things that work for me and there's some things that just don't is that something that I need to practice maybe probably like in AFD we talk about like so I go down and I teach streams a lot and when we teach streams we use techniques we teach the hip grip and heel position and stuff like that that's our foundation we allow them to use whatever technique they want to later but we're just going to give them that groundwork we're having to teach and give them these things also knowing that they're going to go to another, they might go to a house somewhere where the boss has no idea what you mean. A lot of cadets will ask that like, Hey, so do I always do a push? Like, well, not, not always. Sometimes one thing, I mean, I don't know. You never push in a clamp. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I've gotten away from the clamp because from the under the arm position, you can hit and move from that position. For me, it's the most versatile position. Why not? You can hit and move. You can flow and move. You can do it all from that one position. So, Like a camella? Or the camella or right up under your arm, almost in like a rifle hold, right? Yeah, like a splint. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Or the hip grip. You could you can hit and move and flow and move in both of those like in that position. So why do you need the clamp, right? Yeah. I don't know, man. It just comes back to... I try to equate all of all of firefighting. Like I can I can compare it to like some some spec ops stuff. Right. Like I'm not much of a heights guy, like dangling off a rope is not like my number one thing that I want to do every shift. Like I want to go to fires, but the way that I've learned to curb that like anxiety is to be confident in my equipment and know my equipment and my skill set. We have a saying that competency is the best safety policy. Yep. Uh, Somebody else probably made that up. We just say it a lot (laughs) with my boys, but that's how I've curbed that. So like, just like you're saying, try and learn as much as you can about the thing and then find the thing that works for you and do it and do it well, right? Like I came from a place where triple folds were every rig stretched triple folds at AFD. We use Minutemans. But when I was over there, it was a lieutenant and said, yeah, like we have triple folds and automatic nozzles. Like it doesn't matter what equipment you have, get good with it. Just get good with it. And like, I don't even partake in the smooth bore versus fog argument anymore. 
like whatever they give me, I'm going to be able to use to my the best of my ability. Yeah. To me, it's a, at least just be aware of the pros and cons of what you have. And that's it, right? Diving into it and really like learning about something, right? It's But it takes work, man. And that's that's the hard part. People get busy, but work is the answer. Work is always the answer. Anything else on your mind before we wrap up? Seat assignment stuff. Do you have a most recent nugget that's been given to you? Yes. The B-Shift Battalion 6 Chief, Chief Pomeroy. I'm on a different shift than him, but I can't remember what it was about, but I just overheard him saying that he's like, I have three things. These are my priorities as a chief for my companies. And that's response, training, and fitness. And if it's not one of those three things, I don't worry about it. And so I thought about that and was like, wow. It's a pretty good list. Going to fires, going to calls, like good customer service. Like that's number one. Number two is training, being good at your job and knowing your job and knowing that the dude next to you knows his job. And then I know what the boss is going to expect at whatever fire we show up to. That kind of goes back to the seat assignments and then fitness. Absolutely. Like you got to be fit to do the job. What I recognized with that though, is he didn't say safety. Like you said, if you want to be safe, be good. I'm going to take that with me for sure. The rest of my career, who knows, maybe one day I'll be a boss. And those are the three things that I care about the most. Surround yourself with the people that make you uncomfortable. Actually, that was something that I took away. We had an open spot on our crew. Senior man, Mark Frost on the tailboard. We had to pick a new guy. And he said, yeah, this guy makes me uncomfortable because he could be better than me. Mm. And that's why I want him. That's amazing. Like That's a really good point. Like I want to be around the people that are going to, that are better than me and make me want to push harder. Thankfully I am right. Like, God, I'm a rookie at AFD, but I'm super lucky to be at a, be at a house. And I dude, the companies we run with, I want those compliments coming to my house fire. All the companies around us, it's insane. The relationships that we have with them. There's always the talks of the, the, the Charlie side exterior fire that, that extends into the house. You stretch in the first line to the front door, you tr- stretching it to Charlie. We hear people talking about that. And I got to watch the switch from the first in engine stretching a line to the front door and then a second line being stretched behind them go out to Charlie and someone else took fire attack. And it just happened so seamlessly where like we don't we don't even have to talk about it. It just happens, right? And I think it all starts with our mentalities. The mentalities of all the companies around us, like it's aggressive and it's it's awesome. Like I'm so lucky to work where I work. It took a while, but man, I'm just really, really grateful to be where I'm at. I don't know if you know Matt Rush. He's a captain at my house on the B shift. He's about to retire and that's going to be a huge hit. He taught with Andy Fredericks. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anytime I get to to sit down with him and, and just pick his brain and hear what he has to say like is is great and just the people that the people that he's mentored right like i'm kind of catching him on the tail end but to have him go like it's gonna be gnarly but he's he's done a really good job of passing on some good stuff to some really good people that are going to take the reins i'm just really lucky to work with the guys that i do what you said there about realizing that you're faced with someone that could be better than you what that makes me think of is that that should be our goal right our goal should be to make someone as good 
or better than us in like half the time. If I've got the years on I have, if I can make them, if I can help them get to that point in half the time, how much better are they going to be in double the time, right? This whole conversation you and I are having, right? Like you never know when you're going to impact someone's life. And that goes for their mental health. It goes for their their drug problems or alcohol problems or or post-traumatic stress, but it also goes for being on the job, right? Like who knows, maybe I help that probie mask up fast and then he makes a grab 20 years from now, right? Like you never know when you're going to say something and someone's just going to take it. And that's where you save even more lives by teaching and sharing. And it's worth it. It's so worth it. Like I expect it. (laughs) You know, I hope the guys that are coming to my fire, like I hope they're doing that. And I know some of them are. Dude, we finally did it. We finally sat down and talked, told your story. I remember I asked you a long time ago and you weren't ready right away. And uh, I'm glad you finally were. Yeah, man. It's crazy. Like a lot of my mentors, like you and and a lot of your guests are people that I look up to a lot and to like, I don't know, it's kind of crazy. I feel like I'm a nobody from nowhere. I think it's a good thing that most of us feel that way. Yeah. Well, it's cool, man. Sharing your story regardless of what realm it's in, it, I, th- I think it's I think it's important, as uncomfortable as it is. There was a story I forgot to write down to tell you about. When I was first getting sober, I would take these uh, service commitments. So one of them was to go to a detox center and share my story about my recovery. I think once a month I would go, maybe it was once a week. Anyway, one day I went there and I shared my story more in detail with, with some, some gnarly stuff. And I left and then I didn't go back. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't go back. Something came up or whatever. But I'd run into this lady who kind of arranged the whole thing. She pulled me aside one day. And she said, "Hey, you remember when you shared your story, whatever weeks ago?" I was like, "Yeah." She's like, "There was a housekeeper there who had just lost her son, and she was going to go home and kill herself. And she heard your story, and she wanted me to tell you thank you." Jesus, wow. Did she make it up? Like I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. You never know, man. You never know. Sometimes people just need to hear that they're not alone in what they're going through. And sometimes people just need to know you got their back. Well, I'm grateful that we have each other's backs. Yeah, me too, man. Like you're, you're like I said, you're my guy. <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely a good thing. It's definitely good for me. I mean, God, I don't know how many times I've called you. It's been like, man, like I feel the thing. I got this thing going on. I know it's there. I just need to get it off my chest. I'm willing to be that for other people. Yeah, man, you are. If anybody's listening, like you're more than welcome to reach out. Let people know how they can. I mean, probably the easiest way is to, if you have Instagram, Brooks Leather Co. I'm a terrible business owner. You send me a message on there, or you can email me, dbrooks1836 at gmail.com, or you can hit up Scott Hewlett and he'll <laughs> connect you. He'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> Send a message to multiple calls. Nice, man. I appreciate you and I appreciate you doing this. Like I said, I hope somebody gets something out of it. Who knows? Maybe we'll do another one later where I just actually did something cool. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? First one to do something cool hits the other one up for an episode. It's the deal. Yeah, let's do it, dude. (laughs) I'm in.